Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. There are two important things to master in order to be a successful practitioner in your community. Number one, understanding what you do well and doing it. And number two, understanding what you don't do well and finding the right person to help. We are not here to help every person with every problem they have but having a professional network that you can call on can help provide options for your patients who might need other services. This not only benefits your patients, but also can indirectly help build your practice. One common presentation that might benefit from a little extra help is gut-related issues such as IBS. I'm delighted today to be joined by a medical doctor who has devoted most of his professional life to studying and caring for patients with these issues. Dr. Iggy Suse is an integrative medical practitioner in private practice in Melbourne, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. He has held past positions, including chair and past senior lecturer of the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, also known as ACNAM, founding and past president of the Australasian College of Herbal Medicine, part-time lecturer to medical students at Monash University, part-time lecturer to registrars at the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, part-time lecturer to the Graduate School of Integrative Medicine at Swinburne University, a member of the RACGP AIMA Working Party on Complementary Medicine, and he served on editorial boards of the Journal of Nutritional Environmental Medicine International, the Australasian Journal of Nutritional Environmental Medicine, and the Journal of Complementary Medicine. He has contributed to publications on integrative medicine and has been in private practice for over 40 years. A very qualified individual. Hi, Iggy, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought perhaps we could start by giving our listeners a snapshot of your professional journey so far, and in particular, how you became interested in integrative medicine, and in particular, your interest in gut health. Well, it's, uh, it's been a long journey. After qualifying Monash University and doing years of internship, I set up in a geriatric area as a solo practitioner, GP, in the late 70s. And what I was seeing on a day-to-day basis um, was just people coming in for pre-prescriptions of uh, antihypertensives and uh, anti-diabetic medications and uh, heart failure medications and anti-inflammatory medications for the arthritis. It was quite depressing, really, to say that after six years of medicine and two years of training in hospital to be just prescribing medicines. And it was quite frustrating. And I started looking elsewhere. And some of my patients were my best teachers. They came in and told me, well, my skin has cleared because I've been starting to take some fish oils. What's that? You know, it doesn't do so. It's very little supplements available. And the feedback I was getting with some of these odd patients coming in and telling me about it, teaching me, really. I started looking and reading more about it and came across some uh, naturopathic um, 
book textbooks and started reading about and started practicing introducing some diet and some changes and supplements into my practice. And I was getting good results. And I was prescribing less and less medicines. And this was just the start of it. And I was then hunting around looking for other doctors who were doing this and came across a small group of them. And um, we then got together informally, discussed cases, uh, how we were treating them. There's so little um, uh, supplements available at that time in the 70s. There's very, very little. But we scrounged around and worked together and, and uh, we helped each other. And then finally, we decided, let's start a college together. We you know in an informal group, then became a, a formal group. We started what we call the Orthomolecular Medical Association in those days, which then morphed into the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. And, uh, and in my practice, I was finding that really everything, when I was treating the chronic conditions, it finally came back to treating the gut first. Everything, as Hippocrates said, everything starts, all disease starts in the gut, and he was so right. And if you treat the gut, everything else starts to improve. Um, so my interests peak. Not most people go into particular uh, modalities because they've either had themselves or their loved ones been uh, had a particular condition. For me, it wasn't it. I just found it fascinating, and there was so much research that to develop over the over the decades that I just got really involved with it and loved it. So, hence gut research. That's a really fantastic and and I guess a. A very natural progression. Um, let's talk specifically now just about the gut and uh, particularly about how it works. The enteric nervous system, uh, and on your website, you talk about how this nervous system behaves a bit like the second brain. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, well, the enteric nervous system, as we all know, is part of the nervous, is, is made up of three divisions. The autonomic, the autonomic nervous system, that is the sympathetic, the parasympathetic, and the enteric. And they all connect with each other. The enteric nervous system, they now estimate there's more neurons in it, uh, or at least as much as what's found in the, in the spinal cord. So the enteric nervous system controls the motor, sensory, absorptive, and secretory functions of the gut. And whilst it can fun function independently, um, it does, however, communicate with the brain in, in, in a large number of cases. The, the neurotransmitters that are found in the CNS are the same as what's found in the ENS, the enteric nervous system. So there's a lot of communication that goes on with it. The CNS does influence the enteric um, nervous system behavior, and the gut also sends a lot of information to the brain. In fact, 90% of the vagal fibers between the gut and the brain is carrying information to the brain. So the brain is more of a receiver than a transmitter with respect to gut-brain uh, communication. Mm. The gut-brain, for instance, transmits the signals of sensation of nausea, bloating, satiety, and so on. Because much of the information from the gut is to the brain is about maintaining homeostasis, this information does not reach consciousness, but yes. could determine mood changes, yep. triggering feelings of anxiety and depression. So because of the complexity of the uh, enteric nervous system and because it can work fairly independently, it is referred to as a second brain. But like everything in nature, the enteric nervous system is connected to everything else in the body. Yes, indeed. And I think that's something that a lot of chiropractors certainly are very aware of. And a lot of chiropractors do a lot of vagal-based 
work and that's the reason why when you're uh, you know nervous you feel butterflies or when you're feeling very stressed you might have constipation and those sorts of things which um, we'll, we'll go on and talk about in a few moments before we uh, I just want to digress slightly and then talk uh, not so much about the nervous system but more about the microbiome I'm sure most of the listeners are very aware of what that is but perhaps um, you could explain exactly what it is and why it's so critical to health. Well, the microbiome is made up of bacteria, fungi, viruses, and other organisms called archaea. They have coexisted with us since the beginning of time, as far as we are concerned, and, and play a very intimate role. And as research is discovering, they affect virtually every system in the body. It is estimated there are about 100 trillion um, organisms uh, in, in the gut microbiome. So globally, the microbiome plays an important role right from the beginning of life. In the development of the host immune system, from birth, it plays a role in the maturation of the brain and the nervous system. And locally, it maintains a normal gut physiology, maintains the integrity of the gut lining, it ferments in indigestible fibers and produces short-chain fatty acids that is food for the colonic cells. These short-chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory substances. It is constantly, they're constantly communicating with the immune system. The gut, the microbiome is constantly communicating. And, and so the, the uh, feedback goes both ways. The immune system feeds into the microbiome and, and the other way as well. The highest concentration of the microbiome is in the colon where they ferment indigestible fibers, produce what is waste for us, but they produce vitamins. They produce mm. amino acids. They produce short-chain fatty acids. They live on plant-based fibers and need a wide variety of these fibers to keep them healthy. The health of the gut microbiome has an effect on virtually every system in the body. So maintaining a healthy microbiome is actually crucial to our health. A sick microbiome means a sick body. Neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease are related to the microbiome. And there's enormous amount of research happening on in this area. Just to elaborate one example, which may not be common knowledge, is that coronary artery disease is associated with the dysbiotic microbiome. Dysbiotic right. meaning an imbalance. Huh? This has been um, this has been clear. This has been um, related clearly related to eating too much meat. Right. Yep. To explain a bit more, so in the digestion system, when the food comes into the in the stomach, it goes it's acidified, goes into the small small intestine. That's where the absorption and digestion and absorption takes place. So the body absorbs the protein, and and what what should be going down is only the indigestible fiber into mm. the large bowel. But if you have too much meat, some of it and the body cannot absorb it all some of it goes into the large bowel and the wrong bacteria multiply, which shouldn't be there, it, it's only in, in, in small amounts, they multiply and they produce toxic substances called TMAOs. And that has been shown to cause um, coronary artery disease. And, and just explaining a bit more, if the, if the gut, if the acid is, if there's not enough digestive system and digestive enzymes, then it doesn't absorb the, the protein anyway, and that also mm. ends up. So even not eating enough, not eating a lot of meat, but not digesting well, can be lead to the same problem. Yeah, there's lots of um, reasons to lean towards a plant-based diet. Just in our very last podcast um, with Peter McGlynn talking about um, outcomes from COVID, 
and it showed that people who had uh, long-term plant-based diets tended to do better. So um, coronary artery disease, we'll just add that one to the list of benefits to uh, a plant-based diet. Um, even with, uh, with the, uh, healthy aging too, they looked at that. And that's, again, people yes. who are in their 90s have got a much, much, much better microbiome and they're healthier than, than unhealthy 60-year-olds who are eating a meat-based diet. So this, yes. it, it, it goes all, in all sorts of ways, yeah. So let's talk uh, some practical things for uh, chiropractors now. We have, you know, there are the obvious signs of digestive issues if someone presents with bloating or indigestion or constipation, diarrhea, and so on. Um, but a lot of these signs are a little bit more subtle. When, or what are the things that a, um, a chiropractor or a primary care practitioner might need to be thinking about um, when they've got a patient who might be presenting, say, for example, with chronic back pain, um, but maybe that there's a gut-related issue there in the background? What sort of things do they need to, uh, to look for? For a start, it may be unrelated to the gut for a start, or it may be related to the gut. So if you're looking at focusing on the gut, then you look for gut-based symptoms, um, symptoms of bloating, of flatulence, uh, especially offensive flatulence, um, gut pain, distension of the stomach, um, pain in the, in the, in the gut, um, and a, a quick review, a five-minute review of their diet may also give an indication too, if they're particularly eating. Um, we know that the, a plant-based diet is, is anti-inflammatory and a, a meat-based diet is pro-inflammatory. So if mm. there's an imbalance there, that might give an idea because the, the, the meat-based diet is going to cause a lot of pro-inflammatory substances, which if the weak spot is, so to speak, is in the, in the, in the, in the back, that's going to play up there. Yes. Yeah. How, um, so just to maybe run through, I mean, there are obviously chiropractors out there who, um, who are upskilled in these areas and do a lot of work with nutritional and other things to help people with gut related issues. And I'm sure plenty of chiropractors are encouraging a, a plant-based diet or at least reducing, um, meat in high, um, uh, people who eat have uh, diets that are very high in meat, but, in terms of what they might expect from experience from you, can you run us through what a, a new patient might expect when they see you for the first time? What, what sort of questions are you going to be asking? What kind of tests are you going to be performing or, or tests you're going to be ordering to, to really assess a, a patient with gut-based issues? So the way I personally operate is that we, uh, when a patient first calls up, we send them out a questionnaire. I want to make sure because I spend uh, up to an hour with the, with the new patient, I want to make sure that I can help them and they're not wasting their money and time uh, on me. So we send a four-page questionnaire, they fill it out, and then I then look through that. And if I can help them, then I say so. If not, I give them a call and I say that, um, you know, that I possibly can't help them, can't meet their expectations. So, so when they come in then, um, because they, they most of them know that I'm a gut-based um, integrative practitioner, they, they usually come with gut-based problems. Some of them come with uh, other expectations, but because, so I then, the, the way I look at it, so I, I would, in the questionnaire, we'll cover their diet, the diet's covered, their gut symptoms are covered, but I focus a bit more on that, asking them, uh, delving deeper into the, into the gut issues that they may have. And then the sorts of tests we do is to, one is to identify what's happening in the, with the microbiome. It's obviously that's, that's the basis of what I do. So virtually every patient will have that if they have coming with gut issues. Um, 
and that and that comprehensive stool test is uh, is comprehensive. It's it tells me um, among other things the degree of inflammation in the gut. There's a measure of that calprotectin, the adequacy of the digestive enzymes, how it digests proteins, fats. Um, the immune system in the gut, it picks up secretory IgA. Um, it, there's a measure of zonulin, which is a measure of leaky gut. Um, it picks up whether there's a, in, a helicobacter in the, in the stomach. It picks up parasites. It picks up worms, uh, it's, um, viruses, candida. And then bacteria is divided into four groups. It tells us about normal bacteria, pathogenic bacteria, opportunistic bacteria and bacteria associated with autoimmune disease. So it gives us a lot and also measures the, the level of short chain fatty acids. So it's also, it's not just a matter of whether it's there or not, it actually has a quantitative measure too. So it gives us an idea of how, so that when we repeat the test down the track after a, a period of uh, treatment, we can see how much they've improved as well. So it yes. gives us a, a, a lot of information. The other test I do is, uh, is a hydrogen breath test. Because a lot, uh, in addition to what we'll be talking about IBS, which is a lower bowel thing, a lot of it can be uh, problems can come from the small bowel. So this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, that can be, a, a, and a lot of IBS is associated with uh, a, a SIBO, a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth as well. So we can do a breath test to identify that. And, and if that's a problem, we can treat that as well. So these are the two basic things. And of course, uh, as, as a medical practitioner, I order any blood test that may be indicated in the in the consultation that comes up, whether they are iron problems or B12 or whatever. Mm. Uh, I want to talk specifically now about um, irritable bowel syndrome. Obviously, a lot of people who are presenting with chronic um, or acute digestive type problems may have a myriad of pathologies there that you would need to consider as well, diverticulitis um, and, and many others. Um, do you, I mean, I'm expecting that IBS yes. is primarily a, a diagnosis of exclusion that you really have to look at, you know, does this person have a, a tumor in the bowel? Do they have diverticulitis? Do they have, a, you know, some sort of inflammatory disease? And then if that's all negative, then you consider IBS. Is that how you approach something like that? Yes, yes, because the, the there's only uh, so many symptoms you can get in the gut and they can go in in many different ways. So it's a matter of mix, making sure that we're not going to miss any red flags, anything that's more serious, um, and then come to a diagnosis of um, IBS. So the Rome Foundation, uh, which is a group of gastroenterologists, have set up uh, some criteria uh, for this, and, um, and that can be a good indication to, to work through. So, um, so there are no conventional tests for IBS. So we can only go by history um, and excluding um, nasty symptoms as we just said. So the symptoms have got, the Rome Foundation says the symptoms have got to be present for six months. Um, and they must have symptoms of recurrent abdominal pain on average, at least one per day, one, one day per week for the previous three months. And the pain must also be associated with at least two of either when they, they get improvement or worsening of pain on defecation, change in full stool frequency, or change in the stool form or appearance. If two mm. of these plus they've been going on for at least six months, then we can come to a diagnosis of uh, IBS. Okay. And I imagine a lot of people who are seeing you are probably already in that um chronic stage, you wouldn't see too many people in the very acute stages, I would expect. Yes, most of them are in the chronic stage. Yes, yes. 
So, and of course, this is going to be very individualized for a person uh, and their presentation, but what, what do you see are the key issues? And I, and I think I know what some of these responses are going to be because you've already partly mentioned them, but what are the key issues for managing IBS? And, and indeed, what's the typical prognosis? Um, after we've excluded all these things, as I mentioned, so the, the prognosis is really dependent on how um, severe the condition has been. So IBS is more common in, in women than in men. So I see mostly men in my practice. Um, and if a, a young woman comes in, in her 20s and had the problem for one to three years of, uh, of IBS, I would say the, the prognosis is excellent. On the other hand, if I get a 50-year-old woman who's had it all her life, all her adult life, by its very nature, the IBS being present, it would have changed the bacteria, it would have changed, caused damage to the gut lining, um, her diet would be gone, uh, and the stress may have increased purely from the IBS itself. So mm -hmm. that's going to be a lot more work involved. But overall, the prognosis is, uh, is very good. But the features we're looking for, which we're going back to your earlier question, is we're looking for whether this issue with uh, what are the possible causes of this. But a lot of it starts with the post-gastroenteritis. So that may give, give me a marker. Then, then we look for the altered microbiome. Food sensitivities is another factor that may be as a result of it, but also can be an ir irritant of causes as well. So the increased leaky gut we talked about. Excessive antibiotic intake, of course, is, the, is another one. And, and the, the big one is stress. Stress mm -hmm. is a major, major factor. And that is the only one that I find um, in my practice very hard to treat, especially if there's major um, trauma, especially childhood trauma. Yes. Those ones I find very, very difficult to treat unless they treat the trauma first. Yes, yeah. for sure. Um, now, obviously, you have a somewhat enlightened approach to these sorts of things, but um, how would mainstream medicine deal with IBS? And indeed, you know, um, what do your medical colleagues who are more traditional medical practitioners think of uh, the nutritional and environmental approach that, that you take? Well, um, answering the second question first, uh, there are more doctors who are now referring to me, uh, referring to integrative practitioners, because they, if they're finding difficulty um, dealing with it, um, dealing with the whole IBS problem. But the, the conventional te teaching for uh, treatment of IBS is to use a low FODMAP style, uh, um, which is low in fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And, but that may be only for the short term. Uh, six for about six weeks or so, and then they should be coming off it. The, the point with that is the microbiome depends on the FODMAPs foods for its survival and propagation. So mm. cutting that off in the long term will actually be detrimental. But a lot of people, uh, some doctors don't understand that, and they go on for a long period of time, or the patient doesn't come back and stays on it. And I see them come in, actually, they can be a lot worse with it. Um, and then there's the symptomatic treatment for the diarrhea or constipation, which is which is medication. So they use um, tricyclic antidepressants for diarrhea because the side effect is constipation. And they can use SSRIs because, you know, for the diarrhea because, or the, for the constipation, because that can give you diarrhea. And then the other thing is to use gut 
and directed hypnotherapy refer people to um, uh, hypnotherapists who can work specifically with that or the psychologist for the traumas or dietitian for the FODMAPs diet. So they, mm. that's what we do. So it's all very much the end point they're looking for is some relief, which is quite different from what we do is to look for a bottom root cause and try and fix the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about um, people who are wanting to do, uh, you know, who, who want a wellness approach to these sorts of things. Maybe they have uh, no gut symptoms or very mild gut symptoms. We already talked about the value of a plant-based diet. What about things such as pro and prebiotics or taking apple cider vinegar in the morning? What are some, some of the standard things that you might recommend just in general terms for people to, to maintain a healthy gut? I generally, you know, because of my particular practice, um, I investigate first before I treat because I like the the, um, the gut microbiome will tell me which probiotics are, are most most indicated. The thing to with probiotics is this: is that whilst the bacteria, the the gut microbiome can can contain up to five hundred different species of bacteria, the typical probiotic contains two or three things, two or three different species. They are the lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, but many strains within that. Sure, there's a lot of research showing that particular strains will help with um, anxiety or depression or pain or whatever it is. Um, take, taking a general probiotic can be helpful. It's worth a try. It's not going to do any harm for a start. Um, but there's an enormous amount of research going with particular strains of different lactobacillus or bifidobacteria that, that, that is giving specific effects. So that, and that's where the companies are trying to make their, you know, being able to patent particular strains to be able to get that. Um, so the probiotics can certainly be helpful in a general form. And most people would try that because they can go to the pharmacy and get a probiotic and try that and people come. And some people do improve, some people don't improve. Um, so the probiotics is that, but the prebiotics, did you mention prebiotics? Uh, yes, uh, I did. Yeah. So prebiotics are, are, are particular foods that, that feed the probiotics. So giving that, and that can come from foods, really. If you, if you the prebiotics are made up of inulin or um, um, pectin, or um, so the number of different um, prebiotics that you can get as, as supplements. But bottom line is, and I always aim with that my patients, is ultimately no supplements will be needed. You only do a diet. So if you mm. eat a, a huge variety of fibers, that's going to provide all the prebiotics you need. And yep. that's, that's how I, I would uh, approach a, a treatment. What, what about things like uh, fermented foods, sauerkraut, kimchi, and those sorts of things? Yeah, they're all good. They're all part of the diet. Yep. I, you know, there's certain, um, uh, certain cultures, that's all they do. The, the Koreans apparently eat the kimchi right through the whole year. They, yes. And with every meal, they have kimchi. So yep. yes, they're, they're all fermented foods are definitely very helpful. I must admit, I'm a bit of fa a fan of kimchi, just a little bit on the side with a big salad. Um, it uh, adds yeah. a bit of spice to it, so that's great. Definitely that chili. <laughs> yes. um, so what about the chiropractor who wishes to, to develop a relationship with uh, an integrative or, or functional medical practitioner? In fact, before I even ask that question, are, the, are those terms interchangeable, uh, integrative medical practitioner and functional medical practitioner, or is there a difference? Yeah. Yeah, they are. The Americans use functional. They hear the views integrative. They're, they're both very, very uh, interchangeable. Yes. Okay. We'll stick with integrative, given that we're Aussies yes. in that case. Um, so <laughs> it would be would the ACNEM be the the first 
place to look at the ACNAM website uh, in terms of finding a, a someone who does the sort of things you do. Not everyone is um, close to, um, to to Malvern in uh, in Victoria. Sure. The ACNAM doctors have uh, trained many thousands of doctors throughout Australia and New Zealand. So yes, the ACNAM website, which is the ACNAM.org, A-C-N-E-M.org, and uh, looking for a, a doctor there will be the best way to uh, identify doctors um, who can treat in an integrative manner. Fantastic. Uh, Iggy, it's been a real pleasure having a chat with you this morning and I appreciate you spending some time speaking uh, with the chiropractic profession and I think we've learned a lot. Um, And so so thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.